Welcome to Saltier Politics. Julie, it's been a couple of weeks, but I'm so excited to be back. We have an amazing interview ready for the whole audience. We do. Um, this interview came around because I was thinking, and I actually have a, a column coming out on this shortly, but I was thinking about how we really, polling is no longer adequate to explain what's going on. And it hasn't been since, really since Trump ran the first time for a number of reasons that we're going to get into with our guest, who's, by the way, a massively successful Republican pollster, um, a really, really, really great guy, and uh, worked on both the Trump presidential campaign and also on the Christie presidential campaign, and is just a, a great interview. So I'm very happy to have him on the show. Um, but how, how are you doing, Em? Because you and I had a really nice dinner last night. We hadn't seen each other in a while. We went to Russian Samovar, which used to be a big hangout in the early 2000s during the heyday of Sex in the City. Um, and then you had a play to go to, I think. So you and I decided, um, along with a few other people, to meet not far from from where you were going in the theater district in New York. And it was awful. I hate to say it because that place was so good back in the day, but it was terrible. And the service was bad. I ironically got tequila at the Russian place, but they only had Blanco tequila and did well, not tell them. The Russians don't know tequila, so <clears throat> I yeah, did get I mean, delicious plum vodka, which I highly recommend anybody. Actually, I think it's a good place to go sit at the bar if you're not eating any food, but I thought the food was really bad and the service was pretty poor. But we had a great time. That was one of the funnest nights I've had in ages and ages and ages. That was a really great night. And then afterwards, we went. Uh, I went to play. How was the play? You went to go see Caroline and Change, or Change, right? It, it, was, it, was, it was quite good. Um, it definitely was deep and a lot about race relations in the South and um, it's only playing until January 9th, but t it's by Tony Kushner who wrote angels in America. So ready for this year to be over. Right. You know, tough year. Well, speaking yeah. of tough, you, you lost your wallet before our. So this night. is actually ridiculous. I went to a store two blocks from my house um, last night, paid with my credit card so I knew I had it then, came home um, for two seconds, basically to say hi to my babysitter, and then immediately got on the subway. And the minute I got on the subway, I was like, where are all my cards? Where's where's everything? And it was gone, and I was like, oh my God, oh my God. So I texted the babysitter to see if, if maybe I left them at home, they somehow fell out at home. Because my wallet was there, just the credit cards were all gone. And she said, no, they're not here. She looked all over. I, I texted, I called the store. That was all gone. So we get to this restaurant and I'm completely penniless without any kind of ID, um, without my driver's license. And by the way, in New York, you have to obviously show proof of vaccination before you eat inside. And so I show him my um, vaccine card, which is on my phone because it's digital on my phone. And then he goes, well, I need to see your ID. And I was like, I don't have my ID. And he's like, what do you mean you don't have your ID? I said, I, I just literally lost my wallet as I was coming over here. And he just thought the whole thing was very suspicious. He goes, well, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And I said, I really don't think you should be doing that. Um, so somehow I worked it out with him. But he said, we're going to get into a tremendous amount of trouble. And I said, I really appreciate that you are letting me stay here. And now I just gave them up on this podcast. So maybe I shouldn't have done that. But anyway, the point is, um, I then get a call from my doorman who says this very nice dog walker found all of my stuff, delivered it, um, did not want any kind of reward, 
And I texted her. I asked him to get her number. So he did. So I texted her when I got home last night and I said, please send me your Venmo information so I could Venmo you a reward. Um, not even a reward. I could just pay you money for your time to walk all the way over to my house because she had my driver's license. So she knew where my address was. Um, and she said, no need. I really appreciate it. Have a blessed holiday. Um, this is what we do for each other. And so that's it. This total stranger, this wonderful woman. Um, so it just kind of makes you remember there are really just very nice and wonderful people in the world who just do the right thing, which I think is so great. Exactly. Exactly. And reasons not to be salty. Like that's the perfect pre-holiday story that just renews your confidence in humanity. Yeah. I mean, she was so wonderful about it. I was ready to give her 50 bucks just for, for walking a few blocks to my house because I just was so grateful that I wouldn't have to cancel my car. You know, you know what a pain the whole is. deal. The whole deal. Or go find your license again. Getting a new license at the DMV I is just need to get my new license and obviously I can't wait for them to mail it, so I'd have to go like today. It would have completely screwed up the better part of, you know, my day and not to mention having to rememorize your credit card number. <laughs> like all of that is such a pain. So I'm really, really, really grateful to this wonderful woman for doing what she did. And just generally, you're right, it does renew a sense of community, especially in New York City, where I think people don't realize there is a tremendous sense of community being in New York. And especially after COVID, I feel like people are just being a lot nicer or were for a period of time a lot nicer to each other. Now the subways are full again and people are back to their old selves. What are you doing for Christmas? For Christmas, I'm going to go to Florida for a few days. Um play golf with my brother, play some tennis. Uh, yeah, be warm for a short bit of time. That's nice. And, That's yeah. really nice. How about That's, you? So we were going to go somewhere like the Caribbean, and then I just realized I don't really feel like it. I just don't feel like dealing with planes and masks on planes for a long period of time and all that nonsense. So we are just going to stay at our – go out to the country and, and just stay there for, for about a week or so which is nice. I'm just psyched not to do anything. You know, my deal with Christmas is everybody likes Christmas for their own reasons. I like Christmas because it's the one day a year where nobody bothers you. Right. Like nobody calls you, nobody emails you with nonsense to get back to them right away. Nobody's bothering you. It's just, you could just chill and not feel guilty that you're not getting back to people right away because quote unquote, you're with your family. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's the best. And not dealing with travel is really the best thing. Like it's so stressful. Even for me, when I go to Florida, having to take, go to LaGuardia, like the trip to LaGuardia from the city is a pain in the ass. It's such a pain. Sometimes, yeah. And sometimes it takes longer to get to LaGuardia than it does to the actual flight to Florida. That's why I never fly to DC. That's why I always take the train because it turns out to be shorter than actually getting in a flight between getting to the airport and going through waiting an hour to get on the plane. It's just a whole thing. Actually, you know what else we're doing? I think we're going to do this this year. So we are, so my son is studying the Revolutionary War in fourth grade. Uh, and there, you know, that very famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware that hangs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the very, yes. very famous, huge painting of, of him. It's like the size of a wall, basically. Um, well, you know, our house is not far from Washington's crossing, Pennsylvania. So every year um, they do a reenactment. And it's actually really funny. One of my best friends did a great documentary called Being George, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, which if you can find it, I highly recommend watching it. It's not too long. It won a bunch of Emmy Awards. But it was basically about the contest of people, of the people 
in the area to become George Washington because they do the entire reenactment of Washington crossing the Delaware. They literally get on boats from the area in Pennsylvania that's now called Washington's Crossing and take it across the Delaware River to a place in New Jersey now called Washington's Crossing, New Jersey. Um, and they uh, they just reenact the whole thing. There's tons of soldiers and there's tons of, you know, aides to Washington and the people in the boat with Washington who obviously were in the famous painting. But being selected to be George Washington is a humongous deal and it's this really cutthroat competition. And if you watch this documentary, it's hilarious. It's like a reality show and just a tragic comedy all in one. Anyway, because he's been studying um, not just the Revolutionary War, but also this painting, which we actually went to the Met to go see, which is nice to live in New York and be able to, to go see it. But um, as you know, we have a house out in Pennsylvania as well. And so um, we are going to go brave the cold and brave the crowd. Much like George Washington. Much like George Washington. <laughs> Pre-global warming George Washington. It was a lot colder for him. I believe it snowed that night um, or that morning, I guess early morning. But we are going to go to Washington's Crossing. If they're doing it this year, I should probably check to make sure COVID hasn't stopped any plans and we're going to go watch this reenactment of George Washington crossing the Delaware. And I'm, I'm not a reenactment kind of girl as you know, <laughs> I'm not somebody. No, yeah. That's the last thing I think of when I think of yeah. I'm like, but, okay. But he's really into this painting. They've been spending a lot of time studying it. Um, and so I thought, oh my God, what, what a great opportunity since we're so close to where this takes place. Why not? Why don't we just go? And so I'm dragging him out of bed early Christmas morning so we could drive to Washington's Crossing, Pennsylvania, and hopefully be able to watch this reenactment. So oh, we'll that's see. pretty epic. Okay. It's pretty cool because it kind of brings to life what he's been studying for the last few months, and I think it's pretty awesome. And they've really delved into this painting in a really minute kind of way, so I think it'll be cool to see whether he thinks that they've been accurate in their reenactment based on what the painting was like. Oh, very cool. I know. I, I, so that's that's all I'm planning on doing for Christmas. Otherwise, do not call me. <laughs> do not do text not me don't send me your holiday wishes i will not respond I am completely, <laughs> that's my favorite i'm completely going off the grid like a survivalist from christmas eve to december 26th because you i don't it. want to deal with anybody you deserve it a million percent um <laughs> i guess i guess let's get into adam it was an excellent interview and i'm really excited for everybody to yeah. listen to so, it so Adam Geller, again, um, a, a very prominent Republican pollster, uh, nailed, interestingly enough, um, the outcome in 2016 in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania for Donald Trump, which nobody really um, thought were in play, but he predicted that they would be in play, and he was right. So we wanted to talk to him just about the science and the art of polling and how he approaches polling and also what people who are not pollsters should take away from um, seeing polls talked about on TV or in the paper constantly and, and, and what they should know uh, and how much faith to put in them and, and what they should look for. So with no further ado, Adam Geller. So I want to welcome um, Adam Geller, one of the country's preeminent pollsters to the pod. Um, Adam is a uh, Republican pollster who's done campaigns for all sorts of high profile Republicans, ranging from Chris Christie, the home state governor, uh, in New Jersey and Donald Trump. I think, Adam, you were one of the few people, um, a mutual Republican friend told me, who actually called Michigan 
um, accurately for Trump um, in 2016, which effectively surprised a lot of people. But you were right. You were right that you thought that Trump could win places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, which I certainly didn't think he could. So congratulations. That's just an amazing thing. I want to actually ask you about something that I've had this discussion about repeatedly with my own clients, but also generally I, I alluded to this in Politico last week where we're talking about Roe versus Wade, which is that the future of polling to me is unclear. And it seems to me that if you really want to know what people are thinking, rather than asking them your opinion on their opinion on what you think they should be thinking, that focus groups, qualitative research is the way to go. So what do you think about that? You think I'm off my rocker or you think that's kind of in the right ballpark? First of all, before I get to that, I, I want to thank uh, both you and Emily for having me on your podcast. Thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to be here. And um, I do also want to say, Julie, before I answer, I, I want to I tell you um, how much I've admired and respected you for many years. You're, oh. you're so good at what you do. You're so smart. Um, and so and so this is a real treat for me to be able to chat with you. So sincere thanks. Thank you. And nothing really. but respect and admiration. Thank you. And Emily, um, thank you so much as well. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. And Emily, thank you so much for your patience in helping me connect to you guys uh, because I'm pretty lame and <laughs> your patience is really appreciated. So to your question, Julie, yeah. um, polling is, has gotten so difficult um, for so many reasons and one of those reasons really is that that voters are very, very sophisticated. They they tend to hedge some of their responses sometimes when they don't know who they're talking to on the other end of the phone or the keyboard for that matter, as we do more and more online polling. Um, and so if you're going to make the assumption that you've got to ask a lot of questions to sort of get in their heads, you can sort of take a, a holistic um interpretation and analysis of a survey. Focus groups, of course, um, to, to, to answer your question, do come into play. Are they, they, they can be um, sort of a, you know, really, really instrumental in getting deeper inside a head, but, but I've always, I've always thought of focus groups as, as, as being a supplement to really good polling. And I still kind of think that way. Um, I'd rather have a, a really good poll that asks a lot of questions uh, that allows a pollster to interpret the results. For example, you know, simply asking somebody who you're going to vote for, you're going to get some people who say, I'd rather not tell you, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm, or I'm, I'm not quite sure yet. And, and I don't think people are really that undecided these days. I think people know, they just don't want to tell you. But by asking a lot of other questions and really interpreting the entirety of the poll, you can kind of figure out who those hedgers are, who those, where those people are going to go. And, you know, that's where when people describe polling as part science and part art, that's really true. Um, you know, the science is, is, is a cross tab or a number or something like that. But the art is really interpreting it and looking for patterns and looking for artistic types of, of things that we're going to, you know, kind of looking at the big picture. Um, so I love focus groups. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, if, if you told me I can I can take one, I'd still take a good poll. You know, what's interesting to me is, and I'll just look, did you do Virginia? I know you did the New Jersey governor's race this, this year. Did you do Virginia as I well? I did not do Virginia. 
So here's what struck the no, let's focus on the New Jersey governor's race. What struck me about that race is every poll, I think except for yours internally, um, I heard from some of my Republican friends, but every poll that was publicly available had the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, leading by double digits. New Jersey had a um, over a, thousand, a million, excuse me, more Democratic voters than Republican voters in the state. Uh, there was really no reason to expect this race on the face of it to be anywhere as tight as it turned out to be. However, um, I conducted, I'm not myself, but I observed several statewide focus groups earlier this year. And what I found was very interesting. I found that uh, there were certain cohorts of the Democratic quote unquote base mm -hmm. that were not as responsive to Governor Murphy as polls would indicate they were. And so much so that I remember turning to somebody who was with me and saying, oh, I think he's in a lot more trouble than than we think and in a lot more trouble than polls polls realize. And that was I would say that was late winter, early spring mm -hmm. that I saw that trend. And yet no poll reflected that. I'm wondering whether polls at this point can test. And maybe that's something that's analogous to what you saw with Hillary Clinton in Michigan and Pennsylvania in 16. Uh, on the Republican side, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that if you're able to talk about that. I know a lot of the stuff that you do for clients is obviously proprietary, so you can't talk about it. But what's fascinating to me is I have the sense that if you only ask voters what they, what you want to ask them, which is give me the choice between candidate X and candidate Y, um, or in some ways, let's test the intensity of your feelings towards candidate X and candidate Y, or issue X or issue Y, it doesn't get to actually allowing voters to have a real discussion about what they think is important, what they think is a priority, and therefore kind of misses the end result, which is the intensity of support for either that candidate or that issue. I'll use another example. Uh, Roe versus Wade is a great example. Pulls through the roof. I mean, through the roof, and it sounds a lot of my Democratic friends think I'm very cynical with what I'm about to say, but pulls through the roof. I mean, the vast majority of American support maintaining Roe versus Wade. They support potentially keep, you know, curtailing some access to abortion for some people, but certainly or in some stages of pregnancy, but not overall the access to abortion. And yet when you actually, and so when you pull that question, it goes through the roof. But yet when you sit in focus groups and you ask voters what they think about Roe versus Wade, at least from what I've seen in the recent, I don't know, few cycles that I've, that I've seen, never pops up. It's just not an issue. So to me, if you're a Republican, in Texas, where actually the vast majority of people in Texas, both Republicans and Democrats, support a women's right to choose, um, especially for cases of rape and incest. I think in Texas, something like, you know, uh, something like close to 60 percent of Republicans support uh, abortion in cases of rape and incest. And yet this new Texas law doesn't permit that. Um, if you're Governor Abbott in Texas and you're running for re-election and you see that kind of poll, you might think, oh my God, I, I can't go this far with this with this kind of legislation until you realize that voters actually don't vote on this issue. They're just not that intense about it. It just doesn't matter that much to them when it comes to who they're going to pull the lever for. And that's not to get into debate over abortion or to into a debate over Governor Murphy. It's to it's to simply say that I feel like polling doesn't capture in some ways um, those kinds of warning signals that a lot of candidates should be looking at, but sadly don't want to spend the two hours sitting through a focus group. It's much easier to look at cross tabs and get, you know, your, your opinion decided based on whatever you see in those 30 second cross tabs. Julie, um, it sounds like the focus groups that you were able to participate in 
or to watch rather were, were, were really well done and, and well constructed. And so kudos to the to the focus group folks who were doing those things. Now, I, I do love focus groups. So to go back to my right. previous um, um, comment, you know, focus groups really do have a, a, a good um, place in survey research for that reason. You can dig in a little bit. I like to moderate focus groups. In fact, it's one of my favorite things to do because when you're when when, when I am moderating, I feel like I am a part researcher, uh, part talk show host, yep, and and part performance artist. Um, you have to have a strong personality, and again, this kind of methodology 101, and it's not really um, um, your question, but you have to have a strong enough personality to you know, ask somebody if, who might be particularly vocal to let other people have a chance and so forth. So so the focus groups um, really can be very, very helpful. I also think that polling can be helpful if you are kind of taking the approach that you need to take with the polling. And it does, I think, begin to to come to your observation about how much of it does it capture and how much how much of it is actionable? You know, there might be people who are pro-choice, but are they single-issue abortion voters, or are they are they really concerned about other factors that weigh more heavily? And you know, you said something um, in your question that 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 you know, to me, I'm always interested in, which is talking about the way that people think. And so, the way that people think, what I've observed is slightly different sometimes from the way people feel you know there's a really emotional aspect to a lot of decision making these days and 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 so when i'm in a focus group a very subtle difference between um when people say well this is what i think versus when people say well this is what i feel when when moderator adam geller hears that what i really hear is when you think something, you can change your mind. People change their mind. Politics, a lot of time, political campaigning is, is about persuasion and, and trying to change people's mind. But when you feel something, it's not quite the same thing. You can't change somebody's heart, right? I might be able to change your opinion, but I really can't change your belief. I can't change your fundamental values. I can work with what you're giving me in terms of what your opinion is, and I can try and understand you where I can then we can then formulate a political strategy or for that matter, even a marketing strategy. But it does come down to really understanding how deeply um, some opinions are held. And it comes down to whether it's a, a, a thought, an opinion, um, or a belief and a value. Um, and to your point, and, and I'll, 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 I'll sort of pause on this note, even if your value and your belief is that a, a woman should have uh, the right to choose, to what extent is, is that going to be first and foremost in your kind of priority list of, of, of issues when it comes to deciding the election? And you know, to what extent do labels even apply anymore? I've kind of, you know, come across an, an interesting finding. What does pro-life and pro-choice even mean anymore? And here's the example I would give you. In New Jersey and in Texas, voters are very, very different. 
Well, I might say, not me, I'm not Adam Geller, but as an example, someone might say, well, I'm pro-life, except in cases of rape or incest or to save the life of the mother. Well, then somebody else might say, wait a minute, hold on. You just said you were pro-life. Oh, yeah, I did. I did say that, except for, well, you just said that there, you, you want some exceptions. You're not really pro-life. Somebody else might say, I'm pro-choice, but I don't really believe in late-term abortions. I think that there should be a certain cutoff there. Well, hold on, time out. You're either pro-choice or you're not pro-choice. You know, the labels start to conflict. What is a label? You know what I mean? So pro-life and pro-choice could mean different things to different people. And so if you actually were to talk about abortion, just to use your example for a second, and take away pro-life or pro-choice and just say, do you think that it should be this or this? And you give three or four different choices. You find that a lot of people are kind of in the middle. Some people are a little bit more over to the left. Some people are a little bit more over to the right. But there's very few people who are on either one of those extremes. And so and so both polling, when you ask questions in, in, in different ways and in interesting ways, you can you can you can get different insights and you can really follow up on these in focus groups where you can really get into people's heads. A little bit. And that's why I really love what I do, which is just kind of, you know, talking to people about their opinions and, and measuring that stuff and, and really just trying to understand people a little bit. It's fun. And tell me then what you were able to glean based on everything you just said, which I think is really fascinating. And, and I, I agree with you that, that we tend to segregate people based on black and white issues when there's so many shades of gray attached to everything. But right. how, how, you nailed, I think, the Christie election in 20, 2009, um, again, when a lot of polls, including John Corzine, the then Democratic governor of New Jersey, his internals were showing him up by uh, I think double digits. You also were able to nail, as I said, places like Michigan in 2016 when most pollsters didn't. What is it you think that the rest of these pollsters who didn't get these right are missing that you were able to Glean, what, what kind of metrics do you look at that I think should be looked at that you think should be looked at much more carefully? So, you know, there, there's there's a lot of there's a pro, there's probably a lot of reasons why some of the polls aren't right. Um, and 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 sometimes it varies by pollster. You know, um, I can tell you that some of the polls that we saw, we, we just you know, the public polls, we just got the sense that the demographics and the and the turnout models weren't weren't quite right. And so a lot of times, Julie, you really have to, again, we take this really holistic approach. When 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 we try to figure out what it what turnout's gonna look like, we'll look at a lot of past election results. But here's the problem. You know, when a Republican is in the White House, especially when that Republican is Donald Trump. The energy of Democratic voters is through the roof. And so when you look at a midterm like like 2018, uh, the, the Democratic energy was just was just insane. OK, so you can't necessarily say, well, you know, 2022 is another midterm and, you know, 18 was a midterm. It was, you know, so let's kind of look at 18 and 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 and. And now let's set really hard quotas. Since 2018 turnout was like this, we're going to pretty much think that 2022 um, uh, turnout's going to be like this. And, and and that's really going down a wrong path um, for lots of reasons, you know. And so and so we don't do that. If if I if I were to describe 
what I, I, I've, I've used this methodology, and you're going to think I'm crazy. I've used this as an example. I think of myself as a poll whisperer. I just put my ear up to the cross tabs, tell everybody, shh, I'm listening. You know, and I just I just want to I just want to hear what the what the poll is trying to tell me. So I try to not overthink it. I don't want to overweight it. I want my I want my my um, process of sample selection and sample framing to be to be pure and to be consistent. But then I want to have kind of ranges where I'm just going to let the, the, the data kind of come into where uh, it does. And I'm going to trust the poll. I don't want to, if I start to overthink it, then I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. And if my poll doesn't match what other pollsters have, well, that's okay. You know, in polling, sometimes there's a herding mentality, H-E-R-D-I-N-G, herding, meaning, uh-oh, my poll doesn't look like the others. Let me go ahead and balance it out or weight it out so that it looks more like what everybody else does, because I don't want to be the outlier. I've been the outlier in so many polls, Julie and Emily, that it's like it, it, it can make your head spin. And it is a gut check. And it's a little stressful sometimes. But if you believe in your process and you believe in your methodology, then then you do. And I tell people, I tell this to my staff, you know, we either trust our process or we got to get a new process. And so you just really have to be um, uh, strict when it comes to putting it together, but also open enough to let the poll kind of tell us what it tells us. That's a fascinating kind of way to look at it because I do agree that there is a lot of a herd, H-E-R-D, uh, herding mentality in these situations and, and especially from the media, right? So the press, I, I keep telling my reporter friends that rather than republishing top lines, I don't think any of them have ever looked at crosstabs at all or beyond whatever analysis the pollster provides for them, that they really should either find somebody internally like an Adam Geller uh, a nonpartisan Adam Geller who is in-house to look at the polling data that's submitted to them uh, and not just take the word for it of whoever gives it to them, but also potentially, as I said, shill out for some qualitative research and really dedicate some time because, uh, you know, both uh, having worked in a media organization at Fox News for a very, very long time, and I think the Fox News poll is itself very respected, but uh, the way that we would cover polling and the way I think reporters generally cover polling is you just cover whatever top lines you get and you just run with it, right? Which results in Hillary Clinton's going to win. There's a 95% chance. And of course she's going to win. Um, and then I think also a lot of times these reporters, and I blame myself as part of this paradigm because I, uh, I've lately been spending a lot of time in Northampton County, uh, Pennsylvania, which is the swingiest County and the swingiest state in the nation. But until then I have spent all of my time either in on the Upper West Side in New York or in Berkshire County, Massachusetts, which are both incredibly liberal places. And so it's that old Pauline Kale mentality where, you know, how could Nixon possibly win? I don't know anybody who voted for him. And I think a lot of reporters fall into, I think a lot of reporters, right? reporters fall into that. And not just reporters, a lot of partisan operatives do as well, right? Where we're all among our own cohort. Um, we don't spend much time talking to the other party. We don't live among the other party. We don't spend a lot of time talking to the other party. And even if somebody's in the other party, quote unquote, they're kind of like us, right? Like my cohort is is predominantly white, college-educated people, regardless of which party they belong to, because that's that's who I am and that's what my cohort generally is. And I think that's the case also for a lot of Trump supporters on the other side, where, of course, they don't know anybody who didn't vote for, for Donald Trump. So how could Joe Biden possibly not have stolen this election? 
because everybody <laughs> they know voted for Donald Trump and everybody on TV tells them that everybody voted for Donald Trump because that's all they watch. Right. Um, so oh, it's, so it's, a, right, it's a bipartisan affliction. And the media, I think, really kind of falls into this um, trap a lot of times. And, and so uh, to some extent, for lack of plopping somebody like me down, you know, I, as I said, I had the advantage of being at Fox every day for many years. So I actually was plopped down in an alternate universe for a good chunk of the day every day. Right. But but that aside, aside of plopping somebody like me down, um, this this liberal Democrat from uh, New York City in the middle of Texas or Mississippi, uh, or plopping somebody from Texas or Mississippi here on the Upper West Side, I don't know that people really grasp what's happening unless they do have that kind of exposure, even to, as you said, to cross tabs that they can read and understand, or simply if they observe focus groups of people that don't necessarily think like them. You know, I'll give you one great example. Uh, a focus group that I was um, lucky to participate in a few months ago, we asked, it was a Latino focus group, and we asked them about driver, this is a New Jersey uh, focus group, asked them about driver's licenses for, the, for undocumented workers. And also drivers and also in state college tuition for undocumented workers, because that seemed to be whether true or not the governor's big pro Latino plank, for lack of a better description. Well, first of all, they were incredibly offended that anybody was grouping them with undocumented workers. A lot of Latinos did not even consider themselves to be people of color, quote unquote. Um, some of them considered themselves to be white, which is, you know, especially people of Cuban descent and others. Um, and a lot of them did not really care about these social policy issues. They were the most, I, I call it the Janet Jackson mentality, sort of what have you done for me lately, where they could not have been more about fill my pothole, <laughs> uh, fix that bridge, lower my taxes. I mean, they were all about bottom line issues. Mm-hmm. And unless you sit through and you actually listen to people saying that, regular folks who are not in the weeds the way the rest of us are, who do this for a living, I find that you really have no concept of what's important to this cohort that you're claiming to represent. I don't know what your thoughts about that are or, or how we fix that solution short of forcing everybody in the media and everybody who is a diehard believer in their own views on life to sit through those kinds of focus groups. Well, I I, I really love and appreciate all of your points. And and we go back to what you said earlier about, about um, just reporting the top lines and running with it because there's a whole lot there too. But to your more immediate point, boy, what um, what a great, great, great insight that is, and so true. The reality is, is that we're all in these little echo chambers, and we're all kind of um, talking to our own cohort and saying things that everybody else is saying and everybody else wants to hear. Um, you know, you're you're. You raise a great point about about sort of a nonpartisan pollster maybe being able to give a, a sort of more complete view of, of the world. I love the idea though of of first of all getting back to like dialogue. You know, the problem that we're, we have right now is nobody wants a dialogue. Everybody gets pissed off at each other. Everybody gets angry at each other. You know, if I, if I were to come on, and, you know, to to a more liberal cable television station and I were to present poll findings or something like that, sometimes people might not even hear what I have to say because they'd just be so pissed off that I'm there. But it's not just, and that's just an example, because the same thing would happen on on a Fox News or one of the OANs or something like that. If you bring a sort of a well-known Democratic pollster on who's going to give that interpretation, it, it would be met with fury. <laughs> 
you know, so we're not listening to each other. We're not we're not even dialoguing. First of all, let's get back to that. And secondly, well, you know, I love the idea of, of being able to, if if not a nonpartisan, but a bipartisan work with other, uh, you know, work with, with with somebody from from the other side of the island and come up with some cool, interesting findings. I'm sorry, Emily. No, I just find it like to your point, though, I find it interesting, though, sometimes to prove kind of the opposite point when Trump was back in the polls, like MS would be like, look at this Fox poll, even Trump uh, with this Fox poll, people are saying they don't really still approve. And on the opposite side, when, you know, Trump's approval ratings weren't that like bad or if Biden's are lower, Fox will then cite an NBC poll and be look, even Biden here. Dems aren't liking that. It's interesting how also the media can play with the kind of polls and how they use that. I wonder what you think of that. Oh, I, uh, you know, I, I hate the fact that polls have become kind of these weaponized tools to, um, to sort of put forth a narrative. I don't like it when my own polls are used that way. I don't like it when other polls are used that way. One of the reasons why I love polling and I love doing what I do, it really has very little to do with with trying to, you know, sort of publicize results or anything like that. Like Julie said, I mean, most of my results never see the light of day. But what I, but what is so important about my job is to is to, you know, give a very, very honest assessment of of where the world is, where the election is, uh, the good, the bad and the ugly and be able to tell a candidate this is what people don't like about you. This is what people disagree with you on. Um, and and so um, it is it is uh, to me a very, very satisfying job, because even though I'm sort of thought of and 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 called a, a Republican pollster, that's because I, I work for Republican campaigns. But I would take the same approach if I were working for a Democratic campaign. You know, my methodology would be the exact same. My questions would be the exact same. We we test messages in polls and, and, and you know, Julie has seen it million of these things, but you test messages and polls, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes both, but they're all part of, you know, survey research. It's all kind of transparent American Association, public opinion research approved type of stuff. Um, and then you give an analysis. And so, and so I happen to do it for Republican campaigns. Uh, but when you do it, um, when you do it in a way that is sort of, um, when you have that process, you can do it almost anywhere. Um, and, and the reality is, is that the best use of, of polling, to me anyway, is to give people a real honest assessment of, of, of where things are and what things are looking like and, and, and what resonates and so forth, but to use them as weapons and to, for them to be used as nothing more than kind of, um, you know, you're bludgeoning somebody with the latest poll for good, for bad, or the ugly you know, that 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 to me is just an unfortunate thing. I don't think it's it's going away um, to come back to an earlier point. Why are some of the polling? Why is some of the polling? Well, some of the polls are cheap. Some of the polls are poorly done. The methodology might be bad and the results are kind of, you know, um, um, you know, adhering to a particular narrative, the conservative that, side, the liberal side and, and all sides in between. And there is another. So there's so much nuance in your job. So what are the biggest lessons that you have learned that you would tell a young Adam when you just got into this job? Because like you really seem to get the small little nuance levels that really, I think, makes your game so much higher. What would you have told a younger version of yourself? Well, I'm so old that I can't even picture a younger Adam. I mean, <laughs> to me, a younger Adam, first of all, I would compliment them on their really good hair. Um, 
so but but that's not really what you're asking, I suppose. Uh, what I would say to a, to a younger pollster who wants to get into this to this business, even as a a, a partisan pollster, if you're if you, if you are a young aspiring Democratic pollster, if you're a young aspiring Republican pollster, um, your job is not partisan. If you're going to be a good pollster, you cannot be the spin guy or gal. You, your job is to is to um, cover the unvarnished truth, much like a good journalist, right? Without an agenda, just get just get to the bottom. What is the truth? What's going on? And and so and so, if you're going to be a really good methodologist in this business, stop thinking of it as as being you know that you've got to do a really good poll for republicans there's there's no such thing as a good poll or a bad poll for a partisan there's a such a thing as a good honest poll so when you're getting into this business yes you can work for republican campaigns you can work for democratic campaigns you can work for libertarian or green or conservative or whatever but your job is to have a good process and a good method and you have to be able to tell your client here's what's good Here's what's not so good. Here's what's great, and here's what's awful, um, and that's and that's part of the job. And so um, that, to me, Emily, would be probably my first piece of advice for the young pollsters who are out there. Did you ever present a poll to the to President Trump? Yes, early on. So 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 going back to the Trump campaign, I kind of came upon the, the Trump campaign um, uh, late in the game in 2016. Um, up until the point where Chris Christie ran for president, I did not do a, uh, I did not work for a presidential campaign. Early on, when I was very, very young, I worked for the firm that did the dole for president. I did the project director stuff, but I don't really count that because I was just kind of carrying people's books and stuff. But um, fast forward to the Christie for president campaign. Now, Christie is my friend. He's my client. Um, I did his polling for both of his gubernatorial races. And uh, when he ran for president in 2016, he asked me to be his pollster. And, and I was so happy to accept. It was very, very exciting. And um, unfortunately for, for, for Governor Christie, um, you know, he dropped out shortly after New Hampshire. And I said to my wife and my colleagues and my family, okay. Well, now I can say I did a presidential campaign and I never thought anything of it. And I wasn't quite sure. <laughs> I figured I'll go back to congressionals and statewides and the stuff I normally do. I ended up doing the um, uh, joining the Trump campaign in uh, May of 2016. Uh, Tony Fabrizio, the the um, senior Trump pollster uh, and he, who still is very, very close with um, with the president, um, former president. Um, asked me, uh, Tony Fabrizio asked me to join as one of the pollsters and, you know, um, assigned me the states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Pennsylvania. And those were the states that I ultimately did. And, 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 and we won. And, and, you know, again, from a methodological purpose, it was just me just trying to do a really good job and just, just kind of, you know, uh, the process was the same as if you're doing a poll in New Jersey. We ended up winning. And so for a short period of time, um, I did, in fact, uh, brief the candidate and um, uh, maybe once in a while we did some other sort of RNC type of type of polls where we're able to share the data with them. But that was just kind of early on in his term. And 
and, and not too much after that. And how was how how was presenting to him? Did he take bad news and good news well, or how did he? I, I assume he I assume he took the good news well. How did he take the not so good news? Well, there are some people who um, would prefer to only give him good news, and there are some people who would prefer to never give him the bad news. I didn't have any of those options because contained within the poll was the good news and the bad news. Um, I will say this, uh, all kidding aside, he took it reasonably well, but but like like many people, um, I think he would be a guy that would, would only prefer to hear the good stuff, um, but he took the bad. Now, I have a pretty good way of delivering bad news. I try to do it gently. Um, I don't try to, you know, I don't try to, you know, sort of blunt force trauma people with bad poll numbers, um, although I have done that in the past. Um, but you have to, you know, you have to have a little bit of a bedside manner, too, with these things, I find. It strikes me that uh, he probably would have benefited. And I say this sincerely. I, I say this kind of as a. Uh, to quote Jerry Seinfeld, you know, are you offended as a Jewish person? No, I'm offended as a comedian. Like I say, <laughs> I say this as a professional and not as, as a Democrat. I do this as somebody who does this for a living. But um, it, it strikes me that Governor Christie, sorry, President Trump. I don't think Governor Christie, by the way, knowing him is, is like that <laughs> about about hearing bad news. But um, certainly I, I've worked with a lot of clients who hate hearing bad news. Um, so this is by no means a, a partisan affliction. But it strikes me that President Trump probably would have benefited from from either having somebody really explain to him the ins and outs of some polling that was taking place in the last 18 months of his presidency, or maybe even observing a few focus groups or, or really listening to voters out of their own mouths, as opposed to having it um, translated for him in gentle ways, not not by you certainly, but by, no. by people who only deliver good news to him. Uh, I will say this, by the way, and and I appreciate that, Julie, but I will say this. Um, So while I have my own particular method with that sort of stuff, um, I mentioned uh, um, the pollster, Tony Fabrizio. Now, I I started in this business working for Tony. Mm -hmm. Tony and I, you know, when he brought me on to the to the Trump campaign, it was 2016. But my first job in politics, and I'll, I'll date myself here was working at, at, at Tony's polling shop. Back then it was called Fabrizio McLaughlin. He was partners with another pollster named John McLaughlin. McLaughlin. That was 1993. Now I've, I've, I've been friends with Tony ever since. I will give Tony this credit, Julie, and it'll go directly to your point. Tony is the guy who can deliver the worst of the worst news, unvarnished, unedited, straight no tracer, um, Tony, Tony is is that person who you described. So w- while we all have our own sort of, um, and he and he has done that, um, and it's been heck, it's been written about on, in in some books on the Trump presidency that that Tony was the guy that would really deliver the the, the brutal stuff. Um, and so we all have our our uh, style when it comes to this, but I think the important thing is is that. When you're a pollster and there's bad news that you you have to figure out the best way for you to deliver it to the candidate, but you have to deliver it. 
You have to deliver. You cannot sweep it under. Look, there's there's other people on a campaign or on a staff who will who will want to emphasize the good and sweep the bad somewhere else. But as a pollster, you know, your job is to really give the the truth the way it is and uh, where people's opinions are, because that's the only way that if you're going to change people's minds, change people's opinions, grow your job approval ratings or whatever. Well, it starts with knowing really what the truth is out there. What do you think the biggest change to your the polling landscape has been in the past eight years? Well, there's been several. Um, first of all, there's a proliferation of all these kind of cheap public polls that are kind of seemingly everywhere. And again, done done not in the best of methodology and, and done very inexpensively. Polling has gotten very expensive because um, nobody really wants to take a poll anymore. Um, and so you have, uh, you know, phone surveys that take a lot longer to complete. Of course, now you also have online methodology. So a lot of times when we can, we'll do uh, what is called mixed mode methodology, right? Mixed mode methodology, meaning uh, maybe a third of the survey might be landlines, a third of the survey might be um, uh, cell phones, and a third would be online, you know. And so, you know, 15 years ago, we were still doing landline polls, maybe 10% cell phones. But but so so it's polling has gotten more expensive. The, the response rates have plummeted. The um, incident of getting somebody qualified, I mean, it used to be when I started, and again, I'm going back to the 1993, I started working for Tony Fabrizio. Um, you'd probably have to make 10 attempts before you got one completed call. Okay. Fast forward to today, you have to make 150 attempts for the same one complete. So you can think about how much more difficult it is to get a qualified respondent. I'm not going to give you the first 300 people I do a phone call, you know, 400, 500. It's got to be the right people. It's got to be qualified respondents. So it's just so much more labor intensive. It's much more expensive. Um, and that's why high quality polls cost a lot of money. Low quality polls are cheap, but they're low quality. And in a bottom line business, like, you know, company that doesn't want to spend a lot, but wants to get a headline, they'll do a cheap poll and, uh, They'll run with it. Well, I mean, I know we're running out of time, and you've given us so much already. But this is—I could—I could personally talk about this for five hours because I love this topic so much. But what do you think it is um, about Trump? I guess broadly speaking, Trump voters that they are not particularly responsive to quantitative research. That they're not particularly responsive to, or am I right about that? Actually, that they're not particularly respons particularly responsive to speaking to um, voters and therefore they're, sorry, to pollsters, and they're typically then undercounted, which really messes with projected turnout and also projected um, results in ways that I think don't benefit the Democratic Party whatsoever. So I'm just curious what it is, because you've spoken to them, obviously, much more broadly than I have and other Democrats have. What is it about them? Is it a mistrust of the questioner or, or mistrust of, of, of what something or what do you what do you describe that to so here's how i sort of here's how i see it um the the sort of trump voter is really okay with telling a pollster their opinion on things i mean if you want to ask them about border security 
or you want to ask them about trade deals or something like that. All of those things they'll talk to you about. And so if you ask the questions in a way that could determine, are they on Trump's side on those things or are they not on Trump's side on those things, you can begin to get some insight on them. When you get to the head-to-head ballot question, that is where you will get people who will hesitate to answer that question. Why? Because they don't trust the pollster. They have no idea who Adam Geller is. Um, it doesn't matter who, you know, who the pollster is. They don't know who the person is. They can assume that they just work for, you know, some liberal media organization or something like that or big government or God knows what. And so they're going to say, I'm not telling you that. But if you have an understanding of, of where they are on issues and on messages and so forth, you can begin to say, um, well, this person profiles as a Trump voter. And so even though the ballot says Trump is receiving X, we think if you add these people in who are hedging, it's a, it's a small difference, Julie. It, it might be the difference between 45% and 47%. But sometimes it could be that could be a, a consequential difference if you're analyzing the poll. And it goes back to an earlier point that you made about the top line data. One of the, one of the banes of my existence is just taking the top lines and kind of using that as the poll results. When you, when, you, when you tell somebody what the top line number is, you're not analyzing anything. You're simply reporting what the top line data says. And when you're reporting what the top line data says, you're not even at, you're not, you're just, you're including undecided voters. Let me give you a quick example. For, you know, I'll do, a, I'll do a, a, a poll and the top line is 40% for candidate A and 40% for candidate B. Great. Well, 40 and 40 is 80. There's 20% undecided. Let's just assume that there were no don't know, refuse, blah, blah, blah. So 20%, well, my job as a pollster is to figure out who that 20% is and which way they're going to break. Because the, 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 here's what happens. Let's, let's, let's be very, very basic in this example. Let's pretend that all 20% of those people are going to go to candidate A. So even though the poll says 40 to 40 with 20% undecided on election day, suddenly the race is 60-40. Oh, my God, candidate A won by 20%. The poll was wrong. No, the poll wasn't wrong. The reporting was wrong. The analysis was wrong. If the pollster looked at that 20% undecided and said, you know, I know y'all are going to think I'm crazy, but that 20% is all going to go to candidate A. I'm telling you, here's why I think that. Look at the generic ballot. Look at the name IDs. Look at the issues. Look at the demos. Look at all this other stuff. When I do all that stuff and I really analyze the heck out of that 20% undecided, here's how I see them going. So I know my poll says 40-40 in the top lines, but what I think is going to happen is I think it's going to go 60-40 for candidate A. But well, the analysis is right the polls right. It's interesting because what about the proposition that there are people who agreed with Trump and all of his issues or a lot of his issues, but they just didn't like him and they didn't like his approach and uh, whether it was his personality or, or yeah. the way he conducted himself in office um, and so that they would not vote for him or either stayed home or, or voted for Joe Biden. I don't know how true that is versus a media construct, but what did you find in your polling about that? Because everything you're saying makes sense, except for that big caveat that I just mentioned. And I'm wondering if that caveat really exists or whether that was more of a construct that, that we were kind of fed um, as a narrative that, that was created. It's an artificial construct. Uh, here's, here's, here's how it is. When when you agree with Trump on issue after issue after issue, you could tell me you don't like his personality. That's fine. There's a lot of Trump voters who don't like his personality. They still voted for him because they agreed with him on the issues. Uh, and so and so we had we had a guy who 
wasn't necessarily uh, didn't have the highest favorable ratings, even among his own voters. You know, you could look at a, a poll of Trump voters. His favorables won't. You know, you would think what well, they should be 100 percent. Right. No. Be, just because you're voting for him doesn't mean you actually like him. You just agree with him on more issues. And in Trump's case, he got a lot of that. And so and so when I was analyzing the polling that I was doing in 2016 and then I was doing the the, the Trump super PAC in 2020, it was that it was a lot of looking at where these voters line up on the issues. And even if they didn't say that they were voting for him in the ballot, what we did was we took them, we isolated them in the poll, we analyzed the heck out of them, and we determined how many of these people are actually going to vote for Trump. It wasn't exclusive, Julie. Not not like not right. like my my previous example where I just took all that 20%. But we but but you know, three quarters, two-thirds of of these people who really were um, mostly agreeing with Trump on issues and other stuff, even if they told us that they weren't going to vote for him, that was them hedging. That was them not trusting the pollster. That was them not wanting to reveal who they're voting for. Um, but we we made the, the, the sort of, um, you know, our analysis suggested that most of them were going to drift toward Trump. And that was part of what we would do in terms of strategy and in terms of tactics. And okay, you know, in 2016, we're going to send Trump to Macomb County for specific reasons. We're going to send Pence to Grand Rapids for other reasons, you know, because different kinds of voters live there. Right. And, and that was all based on, on, on that very, very, very fine read of the polling. And do you think that, and I'll let you go after this, but do you think that based on what you're saying, if some other candidate emerged and whether it's Ron DeSantis or Chris Christie, who I think is polling at 0.0 at the moment, but could be doing better, I guess, in the next few years. Um, or. Oh, Julie. Uh, well, <laughs> it's true. Um, but uh, whoever it may be, if they espouse every single thing that Trump supported on, on policy, every single policy mm -hmm. issue. Do enough Republican voters say we will get all the good parts of Trump that we loved? without all the baggage that we don't like? Or is Trump such an established figure that it's going to be hard to surmount because so many voters do like his personality, do like his approach from a personal level as well as a policy level? Julie, th that is the gazillion dollar question. Uh, that, that is going to be, that is going to be um, what I think a lot of political observers and pollsters um, and operatives and, you know, are all going to look at how does that exactly play out? Um, it is impossible to answer right now because I think it's just a, such a fluid type of situation. But that is going to be it. If there were if there were an alternative to Trump that, you know, and, and that person uh, really embodied all of those issues, but had their own personality, to what extent does that resonate and to what extent does that not resonate among a very specific type of voter, you know, and that is the Republican primary voter in especially the early primary states. So it's it, it is it is a fabulous question. I'm as curious as anybody. I just don't know the answer. I mean, that we that we have to see how that one plays out. That's I mean, it just it's interesting to me because Chris Christie to me was sort of beta Trump in every way, shape and form, but a much more responsible version um, of him. And it's interesting to me that if somebody like Christie, who has a little bit of the Trump personality, but not to the extreme of, you know, insanity that Trump, obviously, a lot of people feel Trump has, um, 
Lord espouse every single thing that he did, whether that would be enough, um, or whether or whether it's just that Trump's personality is 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 not. It it is the quirk that that Trump voters love. Um, well, just remember this too, Julie. Um, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I mean Republican voters and prim primary voters in particular, um, and and really honestly, some independents and so forth. You know, you could go all the way back to John McCain in 2008. Now, now 2008 was a rough Republican year. Uh, George W. Bush did have really, you know, um, low approval ratings. It was a difficult year to be running as a Republican. But, uh, oh, no, actually, forget about 2008. I'll go all the way back to 2000 when John McCain primaried George W. Bush. And he had what would remember the Straight Talk Express. Yeah. So the Straight Talk Express. And it was a very kind of freewheeling you know, sort of um, seat of the pants, happy warrior type of campaign. And so the Straight Talk Express to 2000, um, you know, predated the Chris Christie style. And uh, to, to your point, which predated kind of the, the Trump stuff. So there's always been a little bit of that element. You can see how how it evolved from a Straight Talk Express of John McCain to a Donald Trump. Where does it go from here? We don't know. But uh, yeah, to to your point, I mean, it's it's really it's really it's 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 quite a mystery. I don't know that there's that there's a real answer um, uh, to it, and I, I I have no idea if you know what what um, you know what Donald Trump wants to do if he's going to run if he's not going to run, you know I have zero insight. <laughs> so I'm just as curious as anybody else. Um, Adam Geller, this has been one of my favorite podcasts. Thank you so much. This is so You've been awesome. Really you can come back anytime. I, I, I live for this stuff, and I'm so glad to be able to talk to um, to you about it because you are so, such a well-respected, incredible pollster, and I say that as somebody on the other side of the aisle. Um, so thank you. Thank you for joining us. Well, really I, I so appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Um, I have nothing but the utmost respect, really, for both of you. Um, Emily, keep doing what you're doing. It's it's really so important, you know. Uh, and Julie, obviously, look, Julie, I, I would say good luck on all your races, but then I'd be jinxing myself, I guess. <laughs> We'd be working against each other. Um, so it won't work. Julie, but you you're you're so good at what you do, and I, I meant what I said before. I, I just I I appreciate the opportunity so much to sort of share some ideas with you guys, and I would look forward to chatting with you again anytime. Really appreciate it, Adam. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank Take you. care. Julie, what an amazing interview with Adam. Uh, I loved the question you asked him about what it was like to present polls to Trump. <laughs> yeah, that was a clutch question. I was like, oh, my gosh, because um, he's just great. He's wonderful. And what I love about our podcast and generally what I love about um, our life is that we're able to talk to people on both sides of the aisle and have great conversations with them, because I think there's a lot to learn when you have respectful conversations on both sides of the aisle. Um, with people, Adam and I have worked on several campaigns against each other. I'm obviously not a pollster, so we're in different capacities, but, um, but that's not even the point. The point is that he's an incredibly accomplished, respected, um, person in his field and should be a respected person. And I believe is in his party, um, and also respected by people like me across the aisle who understand what a completely worthy adversary he is when he's polling for the other side and the other team. So I was super, super happy that he was able to come on and take some time to talk to us. I know he's very busy uh, these days, so that was really nice of him to do. Yeah, and again, I think it's important to see people have conversations. Like when you are at Fox, just where you can have Democrats and Republicans having an actual dialogue. Do they uh, still which, have Fox, do you think? I don't 
uh, it's few and far between. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I so don't know. it was really, it was just lovely to be a part of. Um, so Julie, Chris Wallace to to work with you at CNN. I know. So I guess the dialogue is going to continue wherever I guess I go. That's probably exactly. the consistent. That's probably yeah. the consistency. That's true. You, um, it's interesting. You work for, for Shep Smith, um, at CNBC and now you're working, uh, at CNN digital where Chris Wallace is going to have a show. So you're kind of following the real journalists out of Fox to wherever they may be going now. I know. I guess just follow Emily. Yes. Um, <laughs> exactly. but, but Julie, what? Nobody, nobody left, I think, to for you to go work with anymore over there. But yeah. What is making you salty? Um, what is making me salty? Uh, you know, a lot of things are making me salty. I'm trying to not be that salty at the end of the year. But, um, you know. Oh, well, I, yeah. you did have an epic tweet about the Christmas tree at Fox. That lighting on. Or wait, I think. Right. I think you said something about it or no. Anything about the Christmas tree. I mean, I remember the Christmas tree got burned down, which is obviously awful, but um, it's not like Fox isn't burning down democracy every day. So a little, <laughs> little different there. That was not my tweet. I just wanted to throw that out. Um, I'll tell you what is making me salty, although it's not making nearly enough other people salty. Did you see the, the polar ice cap it was basically about to, about to the, the ice shelf in the Antarctic is about to break off which is that's not great <laughs> well it's beyond not great they think pretty much within a generation they're going to be low-lying areas of the world that will be underwater and not just like far off islands but who knows what's going to happen to places like miami and um and other places in your home state of florida that are low-lying and and, and on the water so look i get it people only care about it's not they don't care about these issues they care about them conceptually but they don't care enough about them to vote on them because it's not directly affecting them immediately. And I get that. A lot of people have a lot of stuff going on that's really an immediate crisis, like not having enough money for gas or for um, you know, transportation or food or, or clothes. And obviously inflation's happening. I mean, it's, it's not a great time these days, but like, this is a big deal. It just is, it's just a huge deal. And for all the years that I was a Fox, all the time that it was almost like gospel that, you know, oh, there's no such thing as global warming. Look, it's, it's really snowing here in New York City in January. Record snowstorm. So clearly global warming isn't a thing. Ha ha ha. It's, it's a hoax. It's a hoax. So many people were convinced of that. And what they don't get is that they were convinced of that because a lot of really rich people were really well invested in fossil fuels. And it made, was in their interest to convince the public of that. And all um, of this misinformation goes to just the detriment of of our future, of everybody's future. And it's really, really frustrating because, like, there are things that could have been done to prevent the acceleration of this. Yeah, and now it's almost too late. And it's terrifying. And it may be that we'll all be dead by the time this really has a massive effect. But not really, because if you look at the increase in hurricanes, the increase in tornadoes, the increase in... Um, just horrible, tragic weather events, it's affecting people now. And then right. the other part that I love is like, well, yeah, but it's not man-made. You know, we've had periods of ice and global, you know, warming and ice age and all this other nonsense. Like, no, no, it is man-made. It is man-made because of all the carbon that we emit. It's just a fact. I mean, it's just, it's not even... It, 
you know, <laughs> I'm not saying this because I'm qualified to say it. I'm, I'm certainly not some, you know, but neither are people like Sean Hannity, right? Like not, none of us are climatologists, not, none of us are scientists, but the people who are, are saying this. But it's not getting through to a huge chunk of the population and it's not getting through because it is in the interest of the people who peddle this nonsense to them financially in their interests to convince them otherwise. And I think it's awful and it's awful for the planet and it's awful for the planet's future and it's awful for us personally and more importantly, our children and our grandchildren. And that's really what's kind of terrifying to me, making me salty, but not even salty, just making me sad because I don't see how it's going to change. Well, on a similar note of what's making me salty, a friend um, recently went to a like a white elephant Christmas party and got Robert That's Kennedy's like white elephant Christmas or party. like you just like get or a secret Santa like or you just get random gifts and like right. you don't know what you're getting and you open it and then whatever that gift is you're kind of stuck with it. Um, but she got uh, Robert Kennedy's book about who is Dr. Fauci. And, oh my god! Yeah. So got that and then um and then like took a picture of it, sent it to me and was like, this was the misinformation that this book is spreading about like saying the claims that like about Fauci with AIDS and and just horrible stuff about um vaccines and all that, like eight hundred thousand people have died because of COVID. And it's like again to your point, the misinformation that people are getting is so detrimental to the health of everyone. Of everyone. Yeah, he's kind of gone off the deep end, Robert Kennedy Jr., in a really big way um, with vaccines, with all this nonsense. I don't understand it. I just, yeah. I don't get it. It's yeah. interesting. I saw him and Cheryl, his wife, on a flight once from LA. I think I was in LA. I forgot where we were flying back from, but I think I was sitting right behind them on a flight from LA. And I love her from Curb Your Enthusiasm, obviously, because she's amazing. Um, Cheryl Hines. But um, I just remember looking at him for a lot of the flight. And just thinking with all the advantages you had and the tragedy that you've had in life. I mean, certainly he's had a huge number of tragic events happen in his life, not just his father, but his brothers. I mean, a whole bunch of deaths in the family's uncle, obviously. Um, and also the advantages that that he's had being born to a family of immense wealth and, and, and privilege and, and fame. Is this really what you want to do? Is this really how you want to spend your life? But I guess he believes what he believes against all scientific reason. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Just so I guess we're salty about misinformation and false, um, false advertising uh, that could be detrimental to a lot of people. But uh, so I guess that's it for our pod today. <laughs> this is an amazing interview. Yeah, this was a great interview and try to not get arrested at any more Broadway plays. <laughs> need a couple of bucks for a hotel room. I'm happy to throw it your way, although your house is not that far. You could just go there. I know. Just and, being a child. It's a childish and, joy. <laughs> um, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy, happy holidays to you too. over, but happy Kwanzaa, happy Merry Christmas, whatever other holiday I'm missing. And I'm, we'll everybody next year. Heck yeah, and I'm looking forward to hanging out with you again, Julie. I'll talk to you soon.